Before I begin today's episode, I want to share some exciting news. This fall, Immigrantly is partnering with Home is Distant Shores Film Festival as one of their media sponsors. For those of you who don't know what it is, this film festival is a celebration of immigration and refugee stories through films and music videos. The film festival, which is in its second year, is a collaboration between International Focus, U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, North Carolina, and Verve Films, based out of central North Carolina. And it will take place in Raleigh-Durham area in September this year. Submissions are currently open at Film Freeway. You can visit the festival website at internationalfocus.org forward slash film for sponsorship or event partnerships and film submission website link is on our Facebook page. Now to today's guest. In the summer of 2018, the co-hosts of the Dennis and Judy show, it's a New Jersey-based radio show, hurled racial slurs at New Jersey's Attorney General Gurbir Greval while they were discussing his directive to suspend marijuana prosecutions. Greval is the second-generation Sikh American. One of the co-hosts, Dennis Molloy, said he was unable to remember the Attorney General's name, so he would refer to him as the guy with the turban. Turban man, Judy Franco, the other co-host replied. Molloy went on to say, addressing the AG, If that offends you, then you don't wear the turban. And maybe I'll remember your name. This is not the first time the Sikh community in the U.S. has been targeted, and it wasn't the last. For today's guest, fighting this kind of racism is personal. Dr. Simran Jeet Singh is a writer, a religious scholar, activist, and author. He regularly speaks on issues of diversity, equity, hate, violence, race, and religion, inspiring others around him. He also frequently offers his perspectives to television, radio, and print media. And today he is on Immigrantly to share his story with us. Welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. If I fictionalized the story, I could not have come up with something more unbelievable. And I think there's something similar that comes with how people who don't experience racism like I do or like you do, like it's it's kind of for them, they just don't know. And like, how are they supposed to know if it's not their reality? Welcome, Simran. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I will start with a question that you ask the guests on your podcast, Spirited. Who are you at your core and what drives you? It's strange when the question is turned on you. <laughs> like, oh, this is such a hard question. I should stop asking it to people. <laughs> okay, so, so the one thing that I believe about people at their core, based on my own tradition as a Sikh, we're taught that we are all embodiments of the same divine light. Mm. So I believe that. And so I believe that about everyone else. It's harder to believe that about yourself sometimes because you know your own flaws and, and all that. So, But I theoretically believe it. I'm trying to live 
that way and see that light in everyone and in myself. But when you say you believe this about others and not yourself, are you then assuming that others don't have flaws? You know, it's harder sometimes to overlook your own shortcomings. I don't know. I think some people are wired differently. And for some people, it's easier to see shortcomings in others and easier in, in yourself. And yeah, I think part of it is how I was sort of how I grew up in, in sort of a racialized identity and, and was always having to look at myself as being assumed to be inferior. And maybe mm-hmm. I've internalized some of that. I don't I don't know where it comes from. It, it's a strange thing for me to try and turn around this idea on myself and say, well, actually, if you believe this, then you are as divine as everyone else. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's probably true. I should live that way. I should think that way about myself. <laughs> and so what drives you? What drives me is, I think this one's a little easier, probably because maybe I'm overly simplifying it. I think just the desire to be happy. And so, I, you know, that's probably something that's shared among most people. And I think, you know, the the paths we take to find happiness and joy in our lives can look very different. But I think that's that's what I like try and do every day. And so that's from early morning when I wake up and, you know, my kids, my kids are young. And I wake up with them and we hang out and play. And then I go to work like all of that. My work, I find fulfilling and brings me happiness, being outside, exercising, like all those things. And so I, I just constantly find myself choosing to do things that I think will bring me more happiness. And so that's that's probably the most active driving force. So you're second generation American. Correct. You're not an immigrant. Correct. Not Your myself. parents are. They came from Punjab, exactly. India, right? Exactly. Have you ever had a conversation with your parents about why they chose to come to the US? I have. And there there are a few reasons. I think the the sort of stereotypical story of looking for more opportunities, mm-hmm. thinking that this would be a place where they would have a higher ceiling and more potential, and and particularly for their kids. And so I always saw that as like a strange explanation until now I have kids, and I'm like, oh, I would do anything for them. I would pack up everything and go somewhere else if it meant a better future for them. So that that makes more sense to me now. I think the less stereotypical part of the story is that they left Punjab when it was in political upheaval Mm. uh, in the 70s, and, you know, that kind of climaxed in the 80s and early 90s. And so... It was in many ways a release from tension as much as it was a search for opportunity. So there was both a push and pull at the same time. That's something that we see with immigrants. Um, Immigrants are on a wide spectrum when it comes to why they came here. Because when I think about my story... I don't know why we came here. Like, Mm. I know because, like, my husband and I, we came for college. But I wasn't ready to come Mm. here. And I learned to love America over a period of time and not instantly. Moving on, Mm. you are originally from San Antonio, Texas. That's right. Yeah, I just flew back from there yesterday, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So what was it like growing up in Texas? Yeah, so Texas is a strange place for a lot of reasons. I think many of the people who are listening probably know some of the reasons and many people probably imagine some of the reasons based on stereotypes of Texans. And some of those stereotypes are true and some are not. And I guess my experience, we grew up in San Antonio, which it's majority minority. It's mostly Mm -hmm. minorities. And so and largely Latino, mostly Hispanic. And that's part of the reason that my parents decided to settle there. They felt like there were so many similarities between their South Asian culture in terms of, you know, family values, food, dance, like all these things kind of like meshed, at least in my parents' eyes. And they felt like that it was a very warm and inviting 
place for them. Do you also think 70s was a different time? Because if you ask me today, as an immigrant, I am very skeptical mm. about Texas now versus right, right, maybe right. when your parents came. Racism was not as mainstream or as normalized as it is right now. Right, right, right. Well, I would say it's probably less that because there was certainly racism that my father mm. encountered. Like, you know, his first memories of being in the States, he was called, I, that was during, you know, the tensions with Iran, you know, 50 years ago or so. And so he was being called Ayatollah and Khomeini as the racial slurs mm. then. And so that was certainly there. I think the difference with San Antonio that I've been able to identify is that it's primarily comprised of people who have been on the other side of racism. Uh, and so they are not necessarily immune from being racist or white supremacy or anything like that, but they're less likely to turn around and do that to somebody else. And I think the other thing is San Antonio is one of the more progressive cities in, in Texas. And so it's like a little bubble. Does it have a big sick population? It has a decent-sized one now, but it didn't when I was growing up. We were one of the only families there. In fact, my brothers and I were the only ones with turbans in the city when we were growing up. Our babysitter was Pakistani. They were the only Muslims that I knew, at least that I can that, mm-hmm. that I know that I knew were Muslim. We knew some Punjabis and Sikhs from the Gurdwara, and that, I mean, that was really it. And what, what was your first encounter with racism growing up as a child or as an adult? Was it like... When? Oh, early. Early, yeah, yeah. Okay. First, the very first encounter was elementary school. I was, I think I was in first grade or second grade. I was trying to go to the bathroom, and these the, the bigger kids, you know, fifth grade is not that big, but when you're a second grader, they're huge. And they basically pushed me out, and they said, you know, your hair is long, go to the girls' bathroom until you look like one of us. Yeah, so that, that was my first encounter with direct racism where, like, I have, I still have that vivid memory. I'm, you know, I'm sure there was stuff before that, but this is the one that sticks out to me as like, oh man, I don't, <laughs> I don't really fit in. Yeah. And I, like, I tend to think of myself as someone who doesn't really dwell in that sort of negativity. Like, it's not something that I would say when I tell my story about myself, it's not something that is important to me. But then I think about it, I'm like, well, it was traumatic enough that I remember it yeah. 30 years later. So there was something to it. And so it must have been Especially important. as a child, you want to fit in. Like I look at my girls and they just want to fit in. You stood out because of Durban. Right. So how did you as a child navigate those emotions? Were you resentful towards your parents because of that? Mm, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I'm trying to think. I've tried to think before. People have asked if I've ever wished that I didn't wear a turban. And so I've I've thought about that and the answer is there were there were moments actually the moment about being pushed out of the bathroom that's yeah. that's the most vivid memory I can I can recall of wanting to take off the turban. Nobody's ever asked me if I feel resentful to my parents for that and I I don't think so. Yeah, I mean part of my experience that's strange I think is and it's hard for some people to wrap their heads around sometimes is yes, I encountered racism mm-hmm early, often, consistently. But my childhood was still, like, really happy, and I didn't really think about, and I don't think about racism as being, like, a major part of my own experience growing up. And so I was never, and I don't think my brothers were like this either. I have three brothers, you know, pretty close in age. I don't think any of us have ever felt resentful about our appearance, I think actually maybe the opposite, that mm-hmm. like 
Well, definitely the opposite now in sort of retrospect, but I think there were moments, especially in high school in the wake of 9-11, when I actually started being really proud of the fact that I looked different as a form of resistance to racism. Mm -hmm. Like it was almost like, oh, if you're going to be racist, then like I'm going to be in your face about my difference. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to deal with it. Yeah, you have to deal with it somehow. Yeah, there, there was something about I think what our parents instilled in us was if you're clear about what you're doing and it lines up with your values and you're doing the right thing, then like you have nothing to be ashamed of ever. You know, the reason I asked you this is because as an immigrant parent, I'm always scared because mm. I look at my daughters and I'm like, there is so much else going on. There is so much racism that they have to deal with. And then on top of that, the fact that we have a different culture at home yeah. and they speak multiple languages and they look different. I always am scared that what if my kids resented me for that? And I'm so glad to hear your perspective on it because it gives me hope that if you instill right values in your kids, everything turns out fine. Yeah. Well, let me take let me take that hope away from you now. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely was embarrassed of my parents and like yeah. not in like... Uh, oh my God, you're immigrants and like I'm embarrassed of that, but more like in a normal like high school kind of way um, (laughs) of like, oh, you tell bad jokes or like, you know, you don't remember my friend's names or, you know, just give us space, whatever that kind of thing. But I had this moment a few months ago, I actually wrote about it. It just, it was like the most heartbreaking thing. So I was going through TSA security Mm. uh, with my family and like usually the process is, it's a random check. A random check, which is, yeah, uh, somehow the guy with the turban always gets pulled aside. So I got pulled aside, and it was the first time I'd flown with my three-year—she was three when it happened. She's, she's about to turn four. It was the first time that she was cognizant of what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so she, I, I walked through with her, and my wife was holding our younger daughter, and she asked why I got pulled over. And you know, I explained, I was like, you know, go with your mom, and I'll be out in a second. And I explained that they were just checking me. But, like, it was in that moment that, like, her thinking about how she'll be thinking about this, I was like, oh, man, she's probably going to be embarrassed at some point that her dad wears a turban. So so there is this hope that there's a way to raise your kids so they're not resentful, but they could still be embarrassed or ashamed and like that. So your work is rooted in who you are and everything that you do is connected with your culture and your religion. Can you explain that a little? I guess part of my commitment in this world is to try and help achieve equity for people who are sort of left on the margins. And that really, again, comes from my my background as a Sikh. Like, that's what I saw our gurus would do. I mean, that's how they lived, and that's what they constantly mm-hmm. talk to us about. About you know, And then if we look at our scriptures, that's, that's, that's kind of the primary message. And so that's been my interest always. I think where that really took form was I was a senior when 9-11 happened. Mm. And that is when I first started to see the relationship or at least the connections of across the country of how racism manifests itself against Mm. all sorts of communities. And, And in that moment, it was particularly Muslims, Arabs, South Asians, Sikhs. And, and I was just I mean, it kind of blew my mind that these people who I knew nothing about and had never met were all of a sudden linked to me as my my kinfolk. And so that was like, oh, and 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 kind of witnessing in the post-9-11 context that the people who were the most vulnerable 
also had the least power in society. Like mm-hmm. they, like at that time, especially like who from the Muslim community or the Sikh community was going to go on CNN and talk about, hey, we're people too, <laughs> right? Simran, did you even ever feel that I'm not even a Muslim? Why am I being targeted? I could say it in this way, like before 9-11, so like during the 80s and 90s, that's when the U.S. was uh, began its war with Iraq and Operation Desert, Desert Storm. I remember then like I was, people called me Saddam and Iraqi as mm-hmm. like their sort of racist terms. And then... Later on, it became bin Laden and Taliban and that sort of thing. Did you correct them? No. I mean, usually if people are yelling something hateful towards you, they're, <laughs> they're, they're not open to any sort of, like, response. And so it would be more – I mean, when I was in middle school, I remember, like, it usually happened on the soccer field. And it would be – so this is kind of the other part of the story of growing up in Texas. Like, San Antonio is progressive. But when you travel with a sports team around to different parts of Texas, then you kind of get a flavor of the uglier stuff. But, yeah, I would get in fights in soccer games. Like, people mm-hmm. would come after me, uh, and my teammates would stand up for me, and, I, would, I mean, it would get messy. But in the, even in those situations, like, you're not – it's not actually about them hating me because they think I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. They're just, like, angry kids who are, like, whatever, right? And so that was that. I think the time that I started thinking about how to deal with being perceived as a Muslim, even though I'm not, was, like, right after 9-11 – you know, our family, we all stayed at home for several days. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a sick man was killed in Arizona four days after the terrorist mm-hmm. attacks. And the man who killed him called him a raghead and an Iranian and a Arab and a Middle Easterner. Mm-hmm. Like, he used all these slurs that, like, showed that he very clearly mm-hmm. had no idea he, yeah. what he was doing. But he just was angry mm-hmm. about the terrorist attacks. And so that's when I was, just, I was a senior in high school and... In our house, we started having a conversation of like, hey, this is going to happen. You have to figure out how you want to deal with it. And it was like a, it wasn't a one-time conversation. It was a, it was a long conversation. And, and the way that my parents would always talk to us was like, you always think about your actions in a way that lines up with your values. And so at home, we started talking about this. Online, the community started talking about, you know, what do we do? And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that like, we had to figure out a way that corrected people's racism mm-hmm. without deflecting it onto the Muslim community. And so, I mean, then it was what we came up with was basically a three-part response, which mm-hmm. was like, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Sikh. Even if I was a Muslim, what you're doing is messed up. And, like, let me give you an opportunity to, like, think through why that's messed up. I think what I've noticed recently is I've actually – in a lot of cases left out, you know, for Americans, three, <laughs> three <laughs> takeaways can be a lot. Uh, <laughs> so now I've, I've, I've usually just come to like, what you're doing is racist and messed up. And like, let me explain to you why. And like, if I get to the part about me being a sick, like, that's fine. But like, getting rid of hate seems to me more important at the moment and in, in certain situations. Let's talk about Sikhism. Now, in American society, there are like altered views of religion and Mm -hmm. different religious identities. And some of it is influenced by media portrayal. Do you think it is crucial to have our voices heard more to correct some of the stereotypes around religion and ethnicity um, and cultural identity? And how much are people aware of Sikhism uh, as a religion it's fifth largest religion it's the largest, in yeah. the world. Oh, so no, no one in America is aware of Sikhism. I mean, 
a recent study found 70% of Americans couldn't identify a sick in a photo mm. and, you know, we're the most visibly identifiable community. I, I'll, yeah. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was doing research for your interview and I typed something and the first thing that came up in Google search was, are six Muslims? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a common, I mean, I want to say it's a misconception, but it's not even a misconception. It's mm-hmm. like a misconception assumes that you have a conception in the first place and it's wrong. The, th- the thing about America is we don't even like think about people who aren't, we don't see ourselves yeah. as, right? So like six aren't even part of the equation. And then when, you know, they see someone who looks like me, they're like, oh, this reminds me of such and such person. So he must be an Iranian Ayatollah. And like, okay. Or like this person looks like bin Laden because that's what I see on TV. So like, it kind of helps answer your other question about why representation matters. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why representation matters, but one of the things is when we have such simplistic stereotypes of who people are on the basis of individuals or especially what we see in America is on the basis of foreign policy, Mm -hmm. intense foreign relations. Like we only really talk about people in other countries when we have a problem with them. Yeah. And so if you look like somebody from another country and we have a problem with them, like you're in trouble, right? (laughs) And so like it's it's troubling to me that like, and this is true. I mean, I'm thinking about this for my kids too. Like why is it that the only people that they'll ever see see on TV that looks like their dad is going to be a violent terrorist, right? Like that's really scary to me of like how do I correct that and like, First of all, it shouldn't be on me to correct that. Mm-hmm. But second of all, what resources do I have to like counter something as prolific and powerful as mass media? Like probably not much. I can do some work at home, but like that probably works for five, seven years. And then all of a sudden she'll be in middle school or mm-hmm. high school. And then like she's paying attention to them more than she is paying attention to me. So like it, it's it's something that is a huge problem for lots of communities. And and we have so many conversations about why representation Mm -hmm. matters. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the most dangerous things we do as people, like it's easy to understand why we, we simplify, we we only know what we know. So like Mm -hmm. if we know one black person, like they're a representation of all black people. And if they're nice, then black people are nice. And if they're not nice, then you're like black people are not nice. Mm -hmm. And so to diversify that is really important. And so Right now what I'm seeing is an opening up of space enough that there's tokenization. So like you'll have one Muslim or one, I mean, I can tell you who that Muslim is on CNN. There's one black person, one whatever, right? Like you get tokenized, but you end up reproducing the same stereotype. Which is not really representation though. It's more like, okay, showing diversity, which is very different from true representation. Exactly. Exactly. And like if you get a spectrum of people from a community then you can actually realize that just like any other community you know, it's complicated, right? Like you have, it's just, they're just people. So like, I don't have to make the case to people that like, there are good Christians and bad Christians or good yeah. people and white and bad white people, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's taken for granted. But if I was to say, for example, like it blows people's minds when I say that the fascist leader of India right now is a 
running on a Hindu platform. They're like, oh, no, but Gandhi was a Hindu. And I'm like, yeah, Gandhi was a Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> he was a pacifist. But, like, that doesn't mean that Hindu Hinduism can't be weaponized by somebody who's tyrannical like this, right? Like, every religion has that. So I think the only religion that, especially in the West, is considered violent is Islam, right? And we face the brunt of that because... I've had conversations with many people where people will say things like Islam is inherently violent. And I'm like, no, any religion can be politicized and weaponized to control citizenry, to commit human rights violations. And I think America has this notion of creating heroes and villains, Mm -hmm. whether it's countries, individuals. And it's very difficult to cut through the noise and make sense. And that's something that I find extremely frustrating. Yeah. How do you deal with that? One of my most helpful instruments is history. And to understand that none of this is new is really helpful. Um, because when you feel like it's all on us to fix in our lifetime, like that's not going to happen. We're that's not going to fix happen, it. Yeah. And also it puts so much pressure on us to to change the world that we ultimately never end up feeling satisfied because it's an unachievable goal. And so history is really helpful in that regard. You know, you were just speaking and I was thinking of Edward Said's idea of the good Oriental and the bad Oriental, (laughs) which is basically when European colonialism was expanding and starting to encounter the world, they created Islam and the Middle East as like the enemy Mm. as the Orient, you know, the Eastern peoples. And they created cultures like East Asia and Buddhism as the good Oriental. And these are like the people who are more like us. And so you see now, I mean, you yeah. could see it then, but it's easy to see now what kinds of problems are created with both of those, right? Like the bad Oriental, we still have the same mess of a situation that we've had for the mm-hmm. last century. I mean, more than a century. But we also have hugely problematic stereotypes of Buddhists as being inherently peaceful to the point exactly. where you have a <laughs> you have a genocide in Myanmar and people are still asking the question, well... How can this be real when the real I mean, when we're asking ourselves that question, we've it's clear that we've deluded ourselves as to what reality we can't accept reality because we're so bought into our myths of who these people are. And so anyway, uh, it's a long way of saying it's really helpful to me to be able to see historically how these structures Mm -hmm. have worked, both in terms of seeing like of producing humility within ourselves to say it's not my job to fix everything and I'm mm. not going to. But also the humility to say, well, it's not just about me and my family and my experiences in Texas. This is like a global thing and billions of people around the world are suffering because of these structures. And so that also produces humility. So I want to talk about your resource guide that you authored. It's called The guide is called Sikhism, a reporter's guide, which is intended to help journalists report on Sikh culture. Mm. What kind of gaps do you see? And you have alluded to that in the, in this interview as well. And what do you think needs to be done, other than what you're already doing, mm-hmm. to fill those gaps? The Reporter's Guide, it came through some work with the Sikh Coalition, a civil rights organization I work with. Um, it came out of an experience that we had working with reporters and learning that Many who wanted to cover Sikhism were skeptical to do so because they just didn't know. They Mm -hmm. didn't know anything and there was nothing out there for them. 
as a resource. Mm -hmm. And so we said, let's just produce this. Like, it's not that hard. And so we put it together and we've seen an increase in coverage on Sikhism. So it's served its role in that perspective. The lesson that I take from that experience is twofold. One, there are people already out there who are trying to cover these stories and they mean well, but they're under-resourced and they don't know where to go. And so like anything else, creating relationships with people is the solution. And so once you start doing that, you see what their needs are, then you can step in and help them out, I think, and, and help yourself out at the same time. So it's mutually beneficial. Simran, is there an online version of it? Where can people go and find it if they want to access? There is, and it's on the, the SIK Coalition website. Hmm. So S-I-K-H coalition.org okay. is where they could find it. The other takeaway from this experience is that even with a guide like this, we're still relying on other people to tell our stories. And you can only get so far with that. And it's not necessarily always possible to open up opportunities or open up doors for yourself to tell your own story or your community to tell their own stories. But again, through creating relationships with people who do that, you can hopefully start to start that process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But what else needs to happen is people in positions of power, and this is not journalists I'm talking about, I'm talking about people who are corporate and who are running these companies, like they need to have the awareness of that these are issues that we need to address and uh, that there is a responsibility to do so. I, I think today, Stephen King, who generally is on point with his uh, political analysis, he he put out a tweet today saying he doesn't consider diversity as being important in the creation of art. Oh, wow. And I think, I I mean, anybody who studies this stuff understands immediately the value uh, that comes from multiple perspectives. But here, I think we're actually talking about something more than just perspective. It's actually like people's lives are at stake. Hmm. And... For those who are most vulnerable in our society, when your stories are not told and popular narratives continue to dehumanize you, then you're stuck. Like, hmm. of course, people are going to come attack you on the street when Absolutely. they see you because that's that's what they've been taught to do. And there's no counter to that. And so that's to me, that's that's what really needs to be recognized in a way that I'm not really seeing today. What I go through as a Muslim American, I would say that I am probably more privileged than a lot of other Muslim Americans. And I don't want to discount that privilege. But what I've experienced, because I came to the U.S. in post 9-11 era. So Mm. what I've seen in the U.S. is paranoia against Muslims Mm. and people of color. That's what I've seen. And similarly for you, as a second generation American, um, Sikh American, it's what you've lived. That experience cannot be um, communicated by somebody else who has no idea Mm. of that lived experience that you've been through. I just wrote a children's book biography of one of my heroes. Um, I was going to ask you about that, by the way. For Singh. For Singh. And it's a biography, so it's actually about his life. But the crazy thing is, if I fictionalized the story, I could not have come up with something more unbelievable. And I think there's something similar that comes with how people who don't experience racism like I do or like you do, like it's it's kind of for them, they just don't know. And like, how are they supposed to know if they don't? It's not their reality. And so for me, that really came 
to my consciousness when I was in college, uh, in graduate school. One of my best friends from high school saw me post something about something annoying, (laughs) a racist incident that I uh, experienced. And he was like, I can't believe that happened to you. I was like, how do you not know that happens to me all the time? (laughs) He was one of my closest friends. And he was like, you never talk about it. Like, how would I know? Like, I I assume that it happened and I knew it used to happen, but I didn't know it continued. And that opened my eyes to the fact that, like, it's not necessarily my responsibility to teach white people about white supremacy. But at the same time, like, there is an opportunity for me to help people see what they can't or they, that they don't experience. And so for me, at least, that's been a, an important revelation uh, through that. Talking about Faja Singh, oh, so yeah. as I was doing research about you, I came across your children's book, mm. and then I started doing research on Faja Singh. And this is a true story, as you mm. mentioned. Faja Singh started um, running a marathon at the age of 89, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't able to find any articles, recent articles about him, so I was a bit concerned. I, I hope he's oh. fine. And Where does this word Faja come from? When I was growing up, I used to hear this term, Faji. Mm-hmm. And Fauji soldier. Right. Is Fauja a derivative of Fauji? It is, yeah. It is. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. Is it a dialect of Punjabi that's spoken specifically in India? I don't know where Fauja comes from as mm. opposed to Fauji or Fauji. Fauji mm. meaning uh, battalion or army and yeah. Fauja being soldier or warrior. Oh. Right. Sorry, Fauji being, yeah, soldier or warrior. I guess here's the cool thing about it. His name and it matches up so well with his story. I mean, not yeah. in a traditional way of like, this man is a military soldier, but like his perseverance throughout his life. I mean, it's incredible. So he's the first hundred year old to run a marathon. Yeah. Uh, he's now 108. He still walks many miles a day. And so this book will come out in August. Uh, it's through Penguin and uh, Random House. So it should be, hopefully it'll do well. And And to our knowledge, it's the first major press book to feature a sick character and for me growing up it was like I would always go to the bookstores and look for for stuff on six when I was a kid I would do it in the children's section when I grew up I started looking in the religion section and like there's nothing ever Um, and so again getting back to the point about representation mattering like for kids to see someone who looks like a sick, someone who's a sick, in the book that they're reading. I mean, I'm so excited about that. And you share your passion for marathon with Faja Singh. You run marathons as well. Yeah, six, six, six now. Yeah. yeah. I actually started because of him. And like, Oh, you started because of him. I, I say that I was inspired. I mean, I always ran because of soccer. I ran this, I ran cross country, uh, but never ran a marathon. And the day he finished his at the age of 100 was the day I signed up for my first one. Wow. So it was like a mix between being inspired and being ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, this guy's 100. <laughs> I don't have any excuses. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I uh, follow your Twitter uh, very regularly. Oh, How do you. you keep calm? Because I see other people, you know, being pissed and angry and I get angry at times right but then English is not my first language so um, fitting 280 characters of not being as angry or being too angry gets complicated (laughs) for me and but there are people who are extremely angry and whenever I see your tweets you're like calm and you're just you know getting your message across which is so effective 
How do you do that? <laughs> I don't know where I learned this lesson. I should reflect on this. But there was there was a point in my life, I think it was around high school or college, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it later and get back to you, where I learned that people's racism is not my problem, it's their problem. Mm-hmm. And like, it's so hard to be deluded by that because you're the one being targeted. And And there was a point at which one of my spiritual mentors, we, I mean, we were talking about something like this, but historically as, as, as an example of like how we ought to live. And he was like, why do you think the gurus, the Sikh gurus, mm. in moments of being targeted were able to love back? And I was like, I, I don't know, like maybe they didn't like feel any pain or, you know, anything like that. And he was like, well, actually, like they did. Of course they felt pain. They were humans. Mm. But they realized that they felt so much compassion for other people's pain that they could recognize when they were hurting on the inside. And, and, and so it was a lesson for me on people's hate. It has very little, to, I mean, it has nothing to do with it. They, they don't know me. Most of the time, they don't even know what community I belong to. Like they're, they're, they mean to get someone else. So it really has nothing to do with me. And so I think once I learned that, it's made it a lot easier to not get upset when people come after me. And you have a wonderful podcast, Spirited. Thank How you. is that experience going? Oh, it's so fun. Yeah, it is I, fun, right? If I, <laughs> if I had, I, I wish I had started podcasting like five years ago. I wouldn't do anything else. It's like the most fun thing. You just like sit and hang out with people you want to hang out with. Yeah, it is so much fun. <laughs> and I have like, I've been doing this for a year and I have met the most amazing yeah. people. And I know that if I wasn't doing podcasting, I, I could never right, exactly. share the same physical space with them. All the celebrities are doing it, which sometimes makes me angry. I thought this was space for like creative people, not celebrities. I mean, they are creative people, but in different ways. But like, yeah, it bothers me, but that's fine. <laughs> there are 750,000 podcasts out there. Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know that. So before I end my interview, I always ask my guests this question. If you were to describe America, how would you do that? I would say America has two competing narratives at all times. And this is probably true for most modern nation states, two simultaneous truths. And when I get so much flack when I say one and not the other, you know, if I say online that America is a beautiful place and has really admirable values that it is beholden to and strives for, People get upset and they're like, well, you're erasing the experience of racism and hate and genocide. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm not erasing it. That's also true. But if you say that America is built on the backs of, you know, white supremacy and religious supremacy and hate and slavery and, you know, genocide of indigenous people, then people will say, well, why do you hate America? There's all these beautiful exactly. things. Yeah. So I think, so I think both are true. And I think that's kind of the... I don't know. It's probably my perspective on on humanity as well, yeah. right? Like it's it's so hard for people to be able to uphold two competing truths at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know why that is. I mean, I ascribe a lot of it to how we're taught in schools that according to the scientific method, there's always one answer. There's always one truth. What is that one truth? There can't be two real things that are objectively true or good or valuable. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's that's where we get this, like, American exceptionalism of, like, America has to be better than everything else because if it's not, then, like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Right. And, like, the same with white supremacy, all these sorts of things. And so, 
Yeah, for me, it's it's really important that we learn to hold multiple truths. And, and in the story of America, I think both of those are absolutely true. Thank you so much, Simran. This was wonderful. Thank awesome. you for coming. Of course, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and for letting us into your homes, your daily commutes. Your support helps us to create great content. Don't forget to tune in next week. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.